I need six volunteers, two from each section, two from each section, first come, first serve, need two here, two here, and two here. Don't be too shy. Come, come, just come on up. Two, two, and two. We need two, two, and two. We're going to try something this morning, this afternoon, this evening. So we got two here. If we go three or four, that's okay. I like ambition, okay? So give me, give me, give me two over here. That can't be ministry teams, though, because you cast lead all the time. I need two. I need two. Got one. Give me one more. Come on. It's, it, you're not going to hate it. You're not going to hate it. It can be more than two. All right, so we're going to try something. We're going to test the rhythm a little bit. The middle section's got the, the most rhythmic part. So the people who are up here from each section, you're going to kind of have to lead your peers very quickly, okay? So first group's got it easy, okay? Wake up, right? So your, your thing is like this. Yeah, there we go. That was, that, was, that was some enthusiasm there. So when they go, this section needs to do what? Right, so let's try it. Uh, one more, you know, here's something I've learned. Football, you know, I've been around the Lambert's for a long time. I don't know if this is something they always, always do, but they used to always tell me, hey, if we all look silly together, it's actually cool, right? I don't know if football still does that. If we all look silly together, it's cool. So let's try it one more time and like do it with them. So they go, and you follow. Wow. We're getting there. We're getting better. We're getting better. Okay. So the middle section has got the toughest, but we got some pretty talented people here. So all of you are accustomed to or remember kind of the, the stomp movie with the drums and the barrels and all that kind of stuff. We did some stuff here a couple of years ago with that kind of stuff. So this one's really simple. We've got a percussionist and a very talented young woman, Miss Cavazzo. So it's really, really simple. Okay. But for some of you, it might not be as simple, right? So we got Oh, right on, middle section, sweet. All right, easy, easy, easy. Okay, so this section, a little sparse. I was in the Army, right? I really loved it. It was, a, it was a thing that was probably fit my personality more than anything. Served my six years and done. One thing they always talked about was you had to have a buddy. Buddy system, buddy system, buddy system, right? You always had to have somebody with you, right? So this group actually has it really simple. You guys just have to high five. Bam. High five. That's all you got to do. So let's try it again. So bam. Oh, Okay. <clears throat> So one more time. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to put that all together. Okay. We're going to try to put that all together so we can have like this synchronous noise thing happening together. Like one big Sterling College team. So how it should kind of go is kind of like this. You feel that? You feel that? You feel that? How it all fits together? All right. So. We're gonna almost say two, three, and uh, boom, boom, top, boom, top, uh. Hey, it's like half bad. All right. So, those of you who know me know that I try to pay attention to my time. I just always don't do a very good job. We're gonna try to do this for thirty seconds and find the rhythm. Okay, we're gonna try to find the rhythm as a, as a Sterling College group. Okay, we're gonna try to find the rhythm. So, I'm gonna say two, three, and. Okay, and we're going to try to get it for 30 seconds and see if we can get it. Okay? So, two, three, and. Come on now. Come on. You got to be quick. There we go. Good job, good job. The people who volunteered, the people who volunteered, grab some candy. 
Don't, t- don't take it all, but, you know, grab, grab some two, three pieces a piece, all right? You know, share the love, share the love. Good work there, Sterling College. My name is Rashawn. Wow. <laughs> right on. Okay. My name is Rashawn. I have, this is my 11th year at Sterling College. I've served in a variety of capacities. And, yeah, it's my 11th year. So, you probably see me on my bicycle rolling around from building to building. Um, but we're going to just jump into the text today. I want to warn you, I'm going to go pretty fast. Okay, I'm going to be like a bullet train through this text, and we're only going to do half of it. Okay, so we're going to read the whole thing, but we're only going to do half of it. The group worked really, 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 really well. Okay, now better than I actually expected. So congrats on that. The title to today's sermon is Wake Up, Step Up, and Team Up. Okay, this passage, I think, yields itself to you. And one of the things I like to do anytime I have the opportunity to speak on God's behalf and try to dig into the scriptures is I also want to communicate a method of Bible study or a method of Bible reading that I think will enhance your ability to understand the scriptures. Because, sure, I'm up here on the stage or, you know, you could be on the floor, but no single individual's words can change the human heart. But this scripture says in and of itself that if you let it get inside of you and you take account of it, it can literally transform your very life. So your ability to read it correctly is very important. So we will share some of those items as we go. We're going to try to wake up. We're going to try to step up. And we're going to try to maybe even team up. Okay, we're going to look at Isaiah's experience here in this chapter and his experience of waking up, stepping up, and teaming up and see if it has implications for us today. We're going to read through the passage, and it is as follows. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe, Isaiah, and I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate, is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, lest a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, this is a pretty meaty passage and we're only going to do half of it. Okay, we're only going to do half of it. If we were to do all of it, it would be 
wake up, step up, team up, and saddle up. Okay, so I did not do it, but the last one would be saddle up, and we would talk about the message that Isaiah had to go and take to the people. But specifically, we're going to look at waking up, again, stepping up, and teaming up. And this particular passage actually begins with death. In the year that King Uzziah died, might sound kind of awkward. You start a chapter with, in the year that someone died. Okay, but all of us are familiar with death to some degree or another. And even though King Uzziah isn't mentioned for the rest of the chapter, he influences the tone and the character of the rest of the chapter. What I mean by that is this. Because we start with the year Uzziah died, the children here, the people here, Judah particularly, they had experienced 52 years of relative peace and prosperity. Now, to us, that might not seem like much. 52 years, well, we've had about 250 years of material growth and wealth and prosperity. Matter of fact, since 1950, we were perceived as the strongest, most prosperous, most powerful nation, not only in the world, but to have ever existed in human history. And we're now on the tail end of 250 years of that. So we might think 52 years, well, you know, we've been, we've been rocking it for 250. What's 52 years? But for them, for 350 years, they had experienced exile. They had experienced oppression. They had experienced foreign armies coming in and killing and pillaging and occupying their lands. Not since the time of David and Solomon in 1200 BC, 13 to 1000 BC, had they experienced peace. So the year that King Uzziah died was very significant because King Uzziah had brought 52 years of peace prosperity. No armies coming and attacking. We got food. We got water. Things are pretty good. I can go holler at Michelle. Hey, what's up? Right? Things weren't too bad. 52 years worth. So the idea that he sheds light on the context is because when he dies, the people in Isaiah, uh uh-oh, what might be happening? The man who was primarily responsible for 52 years of peace is no longer with us. Will we be invaded by another army? Will our land be taken? Will we be enslaved again? Will our country be occupied by a foreign people? Well, that helps us understand the context. And if you you say, well, Rashawn, you really didn't explain to us why context is important. The second most important thing in our lives, other than Jesus or God, is probably relationships, right? Who you might marry, who you might not not marry, all that kind of stuff. Relationships, parents, children's teams, relationships are very important in life, right? So the word love in our culture is fairly ambiguous, right? You love a cheeseburger, you love this, you love that. We, re- we really don't have really a beat on it very well, right? Um, I used to work with men's basketball quite a bit, three years, really, really, really heavy, back from 2006 to 2009. So I'm going to use you cats if you're in here. I'm going to use you cats as kind of uh, illustration fodder. I've known Faye since his freshman year. Cat was playing the drums. We have a pretty good friendship, pretty good relationship. And uh, say, you know, Faye would say, man, I love basketball. Love my basketball team, love my teammates. You know, man, I, I love my mom, I love my parents. <laughs> Me and my brother, we had some times that were really tight. I love my bro. And you know what, man, I'm going to love my future spouse too. Well, we all know that love in each of those relationships is a little different, right? He's not going to love his future spouse the way he loves his brother. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not going to love and respect his parents necessarily in the same way he loves playing basketball, right? So the context dictates the meaning. So Bible, biblical principle number one, maybe the most important and fundamental one, context determines meaning. Can you say it with me? Context determines meaning. One more time. Context determines meaning. Okay, that is a fundamental, foundational biblical principle as far as reading the text and understanding what it's saying to us. 
Okay, each one of you have the capacity, whether you have never cracked the Bible or you consider yourself a fairly mature Christian, every single one of you has the capacity to read the Bible and understand it. Now, does that mean we don't need practice? Does that mean we don't need help along the way? Does that mean we don't need some instruction? Of course, I'm 42 years old, been a Christian since I was 12, rocking it hard ever since. I still need instruction. I still need instruction. So, Uzziah's death informs the context. Informs the context. Wake up! Oh, I didn't get a single one. I was going to toss candy. Wake up! <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to <laughs> see this so y'all know now. I think Lex... Oh, that was a good toss. I played frisbee golf for many moons. Okay. I'll throw one out there, some Skittles. I don't, I don't want to put it out here. Here's a Smarty. I don't know if it's going to get all the way back there. Okay. So when I go step up, and I say, team up. Bam, sweet. Okay, we got it. All right. So, King Uzziah here died and forms the context. So people might be a little worried. People might be a little anxious. People might be like, what is going to happen to our kingdom? So, this is the moment when God decides to reveal himself to Isaiah in a very real, life-changing, transforming way. He says, hello, Isaiah, in verse 6. He says this. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So we're still waking up here. Isaiah's kind of worried. He's kind of uncertain. What's the future going to, what's going to happen? Boom, vision. I saw the Lord. Interpretation principle again. We see Lord here with lowercase O-R-D. Sometimes you'll see Lord translated in the Bible with Lord with all capital letters or drop caps, right? That means the word that is translated there is different, okay? So this one, L, lowercase O-R-D, it comes from the word Adonai, which means rightful owner, complete and total owner. So you could say, I saw the complete, ultimate, total owner of all that exists, the Lord sitting on a throne, okay? So let's kind of keep that in your mind. Imagine a puzzle turned upside down, all the pieces turned upside down. So all you can see is like the cardboard, right? That's what we're going to do with this passage, particularly 1B through 4. We're going to pretend it's upside down and we're going to turn over piece by piece by piece, different words, different phrases. And as we turn them over, I want you thinking about how can I see this piece more specifically, more intricately. So think about that. Puzzles on the table, hanging out with your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or your homies or whatever, your girls. And the, all, the, all the pieces are upside down. You can only see the brown or the gray. Okay, and then you're turning them over, you're like, oh, okay, I have a better idea. Oh, oh, okay, that's an even better idea. Oh, and you start turning them over, and the picture becomes clearer, and then you can put the puzzle together. Okay, so that's what we're doing here in this passage. So the first thing we see is, I saw the Lord, lowercase, owner, rightful owner of all that exists. The second thing we're going to look at is sitting. Okay, King Uzziah died, and the people are really maybe worried and concerned about how things are going to look in the future. And it says that I saw the Lord, the owner of all things, what? Sitting. Is he worried? Is he frustrated? He's like, oh, what's going to happen to my people? He's not pacing back. Oh, oh no, God the Father, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what are we going to do. The king Uzziah died, and I wasn't thinking that was going to happen. What's good? He's sitting. Probably got his feet up, right? Sitting on 
a what? Upon a throne. So who sits on thrones? Kings sit on thrones, right? Not regular folks sitting on thrones. We know from antiquity and just stories we see in just regular Hollywood stuff. If someone is sitting on the throne who's not supposed to be there, what happens to them? They usually die, right? Or punished very, very, very roughly, right? So we see the king, the Lord, owner of all things, sitting, relaxed, unmoved by these things, high and lifted up, exalted, right? This idea of a sovereign, supreme ruler, unchallenged, highly exalted, no competition. I'm sitting on my throne, and there's no one who can even throw a brick at me for that matter. I am so lofty and above all that exists, unmoved by human calamity. I am in complete control of my creation. I am unmoved, supreme ruler. There is none but me, the Lord God. This is what Isaiah is seeing. Now, Michael Jordan is the best player that ever played basketball, right? Historically, the best person ever played basketball. Did he have competition? He had competition. As good as he was, he had competition. Joe Dumars, back in those Pistons, Bulls, um, tournaments, not tournaments, but those series, right? Everybody wanted to see the bad boys against the Bulls because Joe Dumars would lock down Michael Jordan like nobody else. He had competition. He says, I'm high and lifted up, exalted. There is no competition. I am the Lord God alone. There is none like me. It says, and his train and his robe filled the temple. Here, I want you to lock in mentally, okay? We see temple and train. Robes typically don't have capes, right? Priests wear robes. Kings typically have like a train. Like think like a wedding dress has a train. Think like a, a cape has a train. Here I think it's not too far of a stretch. Scholars agree and disagree. But I think what we have here is an allusion or a reference to God's, the son, as high priest and as king. Because you don't see thrones and temples. You see altars and temples. Right? You don't see thrones in the temple. You see thrones in palaces. Right? So I think what you have here is an allusion or a reference to the idea of Jesus as high priest and as king. Mediator between God and men, all authority given to him in all creation. We keep going. And above him stood the seraphim. This idea of these angelic beings, literally called the burning ones. I don't think they're necessarily made of fire because it talks about hands and feet and, and faces. But this idea of burning ones, these angelic beings that basically are standing, it says, behind, right? Standing. So, again, think temple versus throne room. We typically don't think of a priest in a robe with attendants lined up beside them, right? But you think of a king or a queen who is ruling, particularly in this case, a king who is ruling, they typically have counselors, Right? lined up or somehow around them that in a sense either represent their power and authority or help them rule and govern. So here again, I think we have that same kind of reference that these burning ones are a reflection maybe of his very nature because Hebrews twelve twenty nine says that our God is a consuming fire. And it says that these angelic beings who have three pairs of wings stand literally with their faces covered with one set, with their bottom parts covered with another set, and another set they fly. So stay with me here. We have these supernatural angelic burning ones. These angelic powerful beings in the presence of the Lord. And what is their countenance? One of utter humility. Utter humility. I am not worthy to even reveal my supernatural burningness. More powerful than any human being God ever created. 
my illustrious burning self in the presence of God Almighty, I am not worthy to even reveal myself. And they cry out one thing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now we see this three times, and if we don't take a moment to stop there and say, why do we see it three times? We lose what the scripture's trying to tell us. Okay, I'm going to pick on basketball again. Men's basketball particularly. You know, say they're finishing up practice and the girls are practicing afterwards or, or whatever's happening in, in, in Gleason. And a couple of them are just kind of sitting down. Maybe they're iced up or whatever. And one turns to another and says, man, hey, bro. <clears throat> man, Kathy, man, Kathy's really pretty. Okay, yeah, yeah, she's, she, yeah, she's cute. No, bro, no, 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 no. <laughs> Kathy, you know the Kathy I'm talking about, bro? She just went in the training room? No, she's really, really pretty. I don't know a Kathy per se, so I'm not, don't, don't trip, all right? I don't want to be like in Terry's office, Title IX, something. I'm like, nope. All right. So, I got to sign that contract, right? All right. So, he turns to his friend and like, no, bro. No, no, no. You're not understanding me. Kathy, you know what I'm talking about, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. She's really, really, like, really pretty. All right, bro, I got you. No, bro. No, 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 no. You see where I'm going with that, right? He said, the angel is saying he is holy, holy, holy. I can't, I can't even express the nature of his being. All I can say is holy, holy, holy. So it'd be good for us to know what holiness is or what it means, right? So basically it means moral perfection, the inability to be tainted by evil or even tempted by evil, complete other separateness distinct from everything else in creation. One thing that makes the God of the Bible so distinct is he's the only being in existence whose meaning and purpose for existence is in his himself alone. I don't know if you caught that. All of us are dependent upon someone else for our existence, right? Everything in creation thus is created, whereas the God of the Bible, very specifically, the reason for his very existence exists within himself. He is contingent upon no one, holy, separate, other, completely distinct from anything we know or comprehend or understand, unable to be tainted or even tempted by evil, absolute moral perfection. A.W. Tozer says it like this in his modern classic, The Knowledge of the Holy. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. You and I can't help to be other than we are, right? Any given day, we're up, we're down, we're all around. We like the person, we don't like the person. We like tomatoes, we don't like tomatoes. We like collard greens, we don't like tart collard greens. Man, that meat is really good. Meat is not really good. We're changing all the time. We got the Bible cannot help to be other than he is. Unchanging. I like to call him Mr. 100%. He is 100% of everything he is 100% of the time. 100% good, 100% powerful, 100% merciful, 100% gracious, 100% wrathful, 100% judging, 100% all-powerful, 100% everywhere, all the time, all at the same time, 100% knowledgeable, and he's all those things all the time. Whereas you and I, we, we, we like some people a little bit sometimes, and we, we, we you know, I, I thought I was in love with you, but I fell out of love. Right? If God ever loved you, he forever loves you. 
If God ever forgave us, which he has paid the price that we all might be forgiven, he always has forgiven. Unlike us who can't help but change. So guess what's happening to Isaiah in this vision? He is waking up to the reality of what God is like. The earthly king died. The earthly king died who provided peace, who provided security, who provided prosperity for him and his people. And he died and he was a little worried, a little uncertain. And God revealed himself in a way and said, look, I am God alone. I am the Lord of hosts. I am holy, holy, holy. There is none but me. So first question, are we going to wake up? Are we going to wake up to the reality of who God is? Who do, we, who do we think he is? What do we think he's like? That's a question we all need to answer. The next one would be, what is our responsibility to him in regards to what we know him to be and what we know he's like? We need to wake up! <laughs> Pink shirt. Oh, man, that was overthrow. Bam, what's up? I should be a golfer. Okay. So... Verse 5, man, I'm going to clock along here. i got to get this done. So verse 5, how does Isaiah respond to this vision? He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost and undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Once Isaiah understood who God was, he understood who he was. I don't know if you've ever been there. You're a junior or senior in your sport. Think you got your spot locked in, ready to get your game on this fall, spring, or whatever. Yo, I've been working hard. I got my spot. Freshman comes in, takes your spot. Oh, dang. Had to wake up, right? I realized, man, you are, man, I can't, I can't keep up. You got, got my spot, right? Isaiah saw who God really was and he understood who he really was. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He understood his own corruption, his own for his own sinfulness, his own wretchedness. He understood that in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, his very nature was an offense to perfection. So it wasn't a matter of something he did or didn't do or something he said or didn't say necessarily. He understood very clearly, okay, yeah, I have a propensity for sin. Yeah, I have a propensity for these things and those things. But my very nature, my very constitution, the fact that I was born into the human race, my very nature is an offense to God. Woe is me. I am undone. He understood who God was and he clearly understood who he was. How does God respond to his realization. How does God respond to Isaiah's understanding of himself and who God is? Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The God of the Bible in all of his glory, all of his power, all of his splendor, initiated a process by which humanity, and Isaiah specifically in this case, could be in right standing and right relationship with him. A lot of people think that God is this fun hater, demigod, dictator, just waiting to zap anyone who does anything that he doesn't like. Do we see that here? 
God in all of his holiness. He doesn't jump all over Isaiah. He doesn't kick him. You worthless piece of, can't believe you let my people do that. What's he say? He initiates a process by which Isaiah can be in right relationship and right standing with him. That's the God of the Bible. He initiated it. It's not like we initiated it. He initiated the process. He says, hey, Isaiah's sitting there going, oh, man, this must be it. I'll be pushing up daisies tomorrow morning. I realize who I am in the the relationship to a holy God, and I'm probably going to get checked out, clocked out. This is it. Uh, What? I'm cleansed? I'm I'm cleansed? He didn't ask for it necessarily. The Scripture doesn't say that. It says that a seraphim came to him, purified him by this coal. That's the God we serve, a God that says, I am going to initiate the process for you to be in right relationship and right standing with me. God extends grace. He extends mercy and he extends forgiveness. It's hard for us to accept that, though, if we don't understand our own uncleanness. If we don't understand our own wretchedness, if we don't understand our own condition, our own sin, Even if we consider ourselves a good person, Isaiah found it very clearly. It wasn't what he did or didn't do. It was his very nature that was an offense to God. We all have a nature that we're born with, that of a sin nature. But God has initiated the process by which we can come in right relationship with him. Are we going to wake up to that reality? I saw some trial. (laughs) That's all right. We're going to wake up to that rest. So the next one, the idea of stepping up. Okay? This idea of something we're going to plow through really quick. The idea of stepping up. <laughs> I'm running out here. We'll do one, two, three. Don't fight. Don't fight. Don't fight. All right. So stepping up. Okay. Well, <laughs> Don't, don't stop. Okay, this is the idea of stepping up. So we got, we're going to wake up to that reality, okay? And then we're going to step up to face these very same truths in our own lives. There are basically three types of people in the room. Three types of people in the room, okay? There are those Christians who are zealously pursuing God with all they've got, right? There's a group in here that's kind of what you would call lukewarm Christians. They profess faith in Jesus. They kind of want to do the right thing, but they're like, well, you know, my parents were Christians, and we went to church, and I got my fire insurance card, and... Yeah, you know, that's cool. I'll, I'll do the right thing most of the time. And then there's people who haven't made a confession of faith. Right? That's kind of the three, the three, the group of three people, right? All of us at some point, are we going to step up to this reality? We're going to step up to this reality of who God is, who we are, and the nature of the relationship between the two of us. And what are we going to do with that, regardless of where you're at on that continuum? Because God has said, here's the process. My son, God the son, Paying the penalty, the penalty, the idea of atonement here that we're not going to get into, the penalty for my sin and said, hey, the, the coal is there. I'm touching your lips. Are you going to accept this grace? You're going to accept this mercy? Are you going to accept my son? You're going to realize that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that the process is already in play. You simply have to receive it. If you're a lukewarm Christian, hey, get off the fence. Quit straddling one foot in the church, one foot in the world. Realize who I am. I'm not a God to be played with. I'm not your security card. I'm not a Santa to give you gifts when you do things well. I'm a holy, holy, holy God, and I demand complete surrender. Not halfway Christian. He said, I'm holy untouched, unmoved by human calamity. I'm exalted high on a throne, sitting in all authority and power. And if you declare me as Lord, serve me as 
Lord, not as halfway Christian. And if we're people who maybe pursue the faith a little more diligently, he says, hey, don't get puffed up. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Pride comes before a fall. Remember, you are saved by grace through faith. Nothing of yourself merited salvation. Be thankful that you are part of my kingdom. I invited you in. Remain humble, but work in courage. Be bold in your faith, but remember to think rightly about yourself. Think rightly about yourself. So are we going to step up? Nice. <laughs> oh, my bad. We'll go way back. Oh, my bad, Dev. My bad. That came right at you and Tom. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, last one. The idea of now that Isaiah is in a position, he's purified, how does he respond to this? In verse 8, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? So he's cleansed. He's in right standing. He's in right relationship with God. And he says, I can hear him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't see it because the enemy is pulling a veil or a cloud or he's blinding your eyes so you can't see the holiness of Jesus Christ. And here it says, once he's cleansed, Isaiah sees and hears very clearly. And what does he hear? He hears, and I heard a voice. Saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? This is probably, again, there's a lot of agreement, disagreement. This is probably a reference to the Trinity. Some people disagree, some people agree. But you see it here very clearly, right? Lock in right here mentally. Whom shall I, singular, send, right? Who will go for us? Plural, right? So you see this idea of more than likely the Bible tells us that no man can see God and live. In every place in the Bible where we see God manifest in humanity, this is called a theophany, where God is manifested in some way that we can, that the humans can somehow see something that is supernatural like Moses in the burning bush. But we never see like this God being. The Bible says very clearly that, you know, no man can see God and die. So more than likely, this is Jesus, God the Son, sitting on the throne, highly exalted. The Bible is very clear that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and in earth. So more than likely, this is Jesus sitting on the throne saying, Who shall I send for us? Us, God the Father, us, God the Holy Spirit. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is mysterious. Do I understand how it works? Not exactly. One in essence, three in persons, one thing, three separate people don't really get it, but it's clearly communicated in the text of Scripture. So Isaiah is at this place like, hey, hey, yes, I've accepted the means of being purified and cleansed. I will go. So we notice a change in Isaiah. He goes from, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm in the presence of the Lord of hosts, holy, holy, holy God. And I understand the reality of my condition. And this is probably the end of the line for me. Next thing you know, he's like, hey, hey, send me. I'll go. I'll go. You want somebody to go for you? I'll go. Yeah, I'll go. So let me ask you this. Will you team up? (laughs) All right. Smarty, smarty, smarty. Oh, almost got there. Way back there. Oh, man. I hope that didn't bust open. It probably did, didn't it? I have to clean that up. Will you team up? This is what happens. Isaiah says, I will go. I will serve. I will be a part of your purposes in the earth. And I guarantee you this, young people, the God of the Bible has invited every single one of you to participate in his redemptive purposes if you will participate. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, who you hurt. 
justice will be served. The Bible is very clear that all things will be made right in time. So we won't escape the consequences of our sin, but we are forgiven of our sin. And God has said, I will invite you into my purposes. Team up with me. So I'll challenge you with this. Allow yourself to consider, to wake up to these realities, to step up to literally embracing them, and then team up with what he has for you potentially. Surrender your life, give up everything you thought was real and good, and say, you know what, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to start on this different path. I'm going to team up with what he has, because I'm going to live for today and for eternity, not just for today. doesn't matter, black, white, Asian, Mexican, Latino, if we want to be broader, right? Arab, doesn't matter. doesn't matter where you've been. He has initiated the process. So we're going to have a time to respond. Went a little long. If the band would go ahead and come up. Today, young people, consider what it means for Isaiah's experience of waking up to the reality of who God is. Stepping up and embracing that reality. And then teaming up with God saying, send me. I will go. doesn't matter where you're at on that continuum. Non-Christian kind of lukewarm Christian, maybe you're going hard for the Lord. All of us need to wake up to the reality of who God is. We need to step up to those realities and we need to team up for what he has for every single one of us.